Well, we're going to return to the book of Acts. This is a a book that we've been going through now for many weeks. We're going to go to right where we left off last week in Acts chapter 6. So please turn with me there and you can follow along where we resume in verse 8. While you're turning there, I think there's been a few people that have asked about, okay, uh, that pulpit was reconditioned and presented as a gift to, to Pastor Jim and Bana. Is, is there any time in the future when this music stand is going to be replaced with a more permanent structure? Has anyone thought that at all? Okay, a few of you have. Well, that, that is in the works. I just want to let you know that that hasn't been forgotten. Uh, but we're still processing that, thinking about it, and considering how that new pulpit would fit in with the other colors with up here on the platform. So for what that's worth, okay? Let's look at Acts chapter 6, and we're going to cover a lengthy passage today, but we're not going to read all of it. So let's start in verse 8, and I'll read through verse 15. This is what the Word of God says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and some of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, Hey, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witness who says, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say, This Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray together. Father, as we, as we pause, and now with the Bible on our laps, uh, help us to be able to see these words and the words that will follow as a gift from you, that you are, you are speaking to us today about our lives and about our hearts. And so, May this be more than just a story, but interrupt the flow of our life to be able to to speak to maybe this past week or this morning in ways that you want to bring change into our life. We see here in this book a, a movement going out of sharing the message that Jesus has come to die on the cross, to save people from their sins. And I pray that that message would be declared today. And if it is yet to be received and one's faith being put in it, may that be the case this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Several years ago, as I was a little boy, I remember being in my father's house, sitting on the couch and looking up at a coffee table and seeing this small book I was the size of a yearbook. And as I looked at it and I began to thumb through the pages, it was one black and white photo after another of old people. 
And, and as I looked to the cover, it said the ancestry of the Hurtlers. Now, Hurtlers is my last name. And so I thought, wow, here, here's pictures of my family going all the way back to Germany. And it helped kind of help bring some affirmation like, hey, I'm not the only one with that last name. And when the, when the internet got some movement, I remember doing a search one time where I looked into my last name and, and there was this old photo from a, from a, a historical place in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it was a photo of these old guys and it said the Hurtler Hardware Store. And there was my great, great grandfather. And I thought, well, that is so wonderful to learn a little bit about my ancestry and where my family came from when they arrived from Germany. Well, as we go through the book of Acts, we are endeavoring to do the same thing. We are going back and learning about our ancestry, not so much of our ethnicity, but of our faith. And we are going back to what happened when the church was given birth. So the book of Acts is the historical account of this. And I don't know about you, but I found it very refreshing. In our day, everyone has an opinion of what a good church looks like and how to get there. Whether it is of marketing, whether it is by strategic planning, whether it is by neighborhood involvement, a certain style of music, a vibrant children's ministry or student ministry. But what we see here is going all the way back to the basics of what these people had. And it was primarily the word of God, the message of Jesus dying on the cross, him being raised to life, the Holy Spirit, prayer, and one another. And with those components, the church took off and grew. So much so, last week as we looked at Acts chapter 6, the growth was so explosive that problems occurred. And the apostles were not able to go out and share that message of Jesus dying for their sins as quickly and swiftly as they could because there were some widows that were not being taken care of. So they restructured their leadership and they decided to empower seven different men to kind of help take care of the widows. This week, we're going to look at one of those seven men. His name was Stephen. In fact, if you like biographies, and I do, this week is on Stephen. The next time we get together will be on Philip. And the following time we get together will be on Paul. So we're going to get three messages that are going to serve as biographies of some key figures in the early church. Now, who was the Stephen? The name Stephen means a victor's crown. If you remember what these early disciples are doing is they are witnessing of what Jesus has done. He's died on the cross and he's raised from the dead. The word witness is martyr. And Stephen will be the first Christian that is murdered for his faith. So as I look at this passage, and I've been reading through it this week, I cannot help but, but see the glimpses that, that he is so much like Jesus. So if you have an outline that was in your bulletin, you can follow along with me. And the first point is this, that Stephen displayed Jesus-like qualities. Stephen displayed Jesus-like qualities. If I were just to back up 
and look at verse 3 from the passage that we covered last week, we will see that Stephen, as well as these other six, six men, were known for their good repute. They were full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Stephen was known not only for his grasp of the Scriptures, and we will see that in chapter 7, but he was known for how to apply the Scriptures in a practical way to life. He was wise. Well, can you think of anyone else in the New Testament that is known for being wise? Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 2, it was said of Jesus as he was growing up from an infant to a boy that he grew in wisdom and stature. And then if one wants to really become wise, according to Colossians 2, verses 3 and 4, they get wise in Christ. In Christ, all the hidden treasures of wisdom are found, according to Paul's letter there in Colossians. So wisdom is in pursuing Jesus. So the first distinctive of Stephen's life is that he is wise like Jesus. The second distinctive is that he is full of the Holy Spirit. We can go back to the passage from last week, and we will see in verse 5 that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was not only full of the Holy Spirit, but the next part there in your outline is he was full of grace. In fact, if you want to identify and just reduce Stephen down to a few words, I think you would have to use the word full. Now, I have the privilege of being the father of five wonderful boys, and I've observed them over the years as they start learning how to pour a glass of water or a glass of milk or a glass of Kool-Aid. How many of your kids started like this? Hey, that's good. I just learned how to, how to pour. That's not how ours learned. When ours learned how to pour, they pour like this, right? Now that is full. The concept of being full is to be filled, right? This is a wonderful word picture of Stephen when you consider what is he full of. According to Acts chapter 6, he is full of wisdom. We just covered that. But according to verse 8, let's look at this again. Stephen is full of grace and full of power. It's as if to say that Stephen is entirely under the control of the Spirit of God. So that when he gets bumped and when he experiences some pressure in life, do you know what comes out of his life? Christ-likeness. The grace of God. Because he is full. He is filled to the brim. This is who Stephen is. And the scripture says here, in the next part of verse 8, that he was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now this is amazing. Because if you've been following along with us in the book of Acts, who have been doing the great wonders and signs? It's the apostles, right? And if you go back before that, it was Jesus. So here is the first sign of a person who is not Jesus and not an apostle performing miracles. Now, how is, he, how is that even possible? Well, we could look here. It's because he is full of the Spirit. And do you remember what Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says? 
you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And because he is full, because he is entirely under the control of the Spirit of God, he is able to do some things. And so when he preaches the message of Jesus dying on the cross and raised to life, the Lord in his providence is authenticating that message by allowing him to do some miracles. Now, one would think if someone is completely under the control of the Holy Spirit, he is Christ-like, that his life would go well. That his relationships would be harmonious. That there would be one promotion after another at work. That all of his financial needs would be taken care of. Isn't that what we think about one who exhibits Christ-like qualities? But is that what Stephen's life was like? So the first part was that he had these Jesus-like qualities. Consider the second part, and that is Stephen endured persecution like Jesus. So let's look at our next verse. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogues of the freedmen. Now what is the synagogue of the freedmen? A synagogue was just a, a place of worship. It was a place where people would hear the scriptures. They would come and receive some ed- education. This particular synagogue was, had a title called Freedmen. Likely what that had to do with these people that attended here at one time were slaves and had been set free. Or at one time their ancestors were slaves and had been set free. And so we see that there are a group of people that attend this particular synagogue. But the last part of verse 9 says they rose up and disputed with Stephen. The word dispute is they, they argued. So here is this persecution taking place in three phases. The first phase is that of argue. So they come against him and they get into this formal debate with Stephen. Likely Stephen is proclaiming Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is proclaiming that Jesus died on the cross, that they need to repent of their sins and believe what he has done and that he has been raised to life. And here's what the scripture says about that. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was so full of wisdom that when he entered into a debate with all these people at that synagogue, they shut it down. This is getting us nowhere. Now, does that sound familiar? Can you think of another person in the New Testament that had that same sort of effect on people? He was just like Jesus. In Luke chapter 20, there's this one wave after another of people trying to debate with Jesus. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Should we, uh, uh, what, what about the resurrection? The Sadducees asked him. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 40, the scriptures record, they no longer dared to ask him any question. This is fruitless. Every time we ask him a question, he has a better answer than our question. So they decide to turn it up a notch. Here's the second phase of this persecution. Well, it's not working to get into an honest conversation with him. So let's spread lies. Look with me at verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, Hey, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they begin to lie. They get people to to come up and, and connive against this Stephen. Let me ask you. 
Does that sound familiar? Can you think of another person in the New Testament that had that very same thing happen? Exactly, Jesus did in Matthew 26, verses 59 through 60. There were people that came and brought false testimony against him, how they might put him to death. And the third phase of this persecution, first, let's get into an honest debate. That didn't work. Second, let's lie about him. Third, let's bring in the Supreme Court. Let's, let's utilize the Sanhedrin. So let's look at verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. The word seized in the original language is the word of violently dragging him. They take Stephen, the man full of grace, full of the spirit, and they say, that's enough of this. And they drag him in front of the 70 men Supreme Court. And there he stands, as if they have to give an account for what he is about to do. Now, if that sounds familiar, like Sanhedrin, haven't we been hitting on the Sanhedrin the last few weeks? Yes. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were before the Sanhedrin. And they were told, don't you speak in the name of Jesus anymore. They got a warning. The next chapter, Acts chapter 5, not only Peter and John, but all the apostles stand before the, the Sanhedrin. This time, they are also told, don't speak in the name of Jesus. But this time, they are beaten and then released. Now we're on the sixth chapter, and this time, one will die for his faith. Are you seeing the severity increase? Warning, beating, murder. This is what we have here in this progression. Verse 13 says, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So this is the charge that's brought before Stephen. Stephen is opposed to the temple and the law. These are the lies here. I'll tell you what's wrong with this guy right here. is He is against this house of worship. He is against the Old Testament laws to live by. That's why he needs to be dealt with. Now, I want to ask you a question. How would you respond to such false accusations? I I suspect if you're old enough, you've had some false accusations levied against you. What would be your response? Or maybe I'd put it this way. What would be your countenance? In response to this, and as you're pondering that, let us look here at verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So as he is enduring all these false accusations, these lies about him, and he can see that they are, they're thirsty for his blood. And you look at the countenance of his face. It is a glow. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like Moses in Exodus 34 when he would meet with God, he would come out, and there was just a joy on his disposition? I want to suggest to you that he was full. He was full of God's grace. And that when he was squeezed, 
when he was bumped up against, when he was targeted, you know what came out? The grace of God. Faith. Wisdom. This is what came out of him. What comes out of you? And what comes out of me? So he's like Jesus in these qualities. He's like Jesus in this persecution. And thirdly, Stephen employed the scriptures like Jesus. So as we get into chapter 7, let us read this. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen says, let me tell you a little story. And what he's going to do for the next 53 verses is he's going to unpack a long narrative of the Old Testament in which he includes stories of Abraham, Joseph, a large portion of Moses, David, Solomon, the prophets, and church, who do you think he's going to end up with? That's exactly right. He's going to end up in Jesus because that's what the gospel does. It always has us end up with Jesus. Look with me at how he addresses the people in verse 2. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers. Now, is anyone taken back by that address? He is referring to these people that are out to literally kill him. And because he is so full of God's grace, that when he is bumped up against, the grace of God comes out and he addresses them as brothers and as fathers. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read the next 53 verses. And I'm not going to take the time to go through them in detail. Let me just give you a few high points of this longest sermon in the book of Acts, okay? So here are a few things that he is going to say. The first is this. God is not confined to one location. He meets people where they are. So one of the arguments that's been levied against Stephen is that you are against the temple. And what Stephen is going to say, think of your history, loved ones. God meets people outside the temple. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haram. Haram. Here's the point. God met Abraham, at that time a pagan, before there was any temple. He met him in a foreign land. He doesn't confine himself to just meeting people in the temple. We could see this also in verse 9 of Acts 7. Speaking of Joseph and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. Where was God with him? In Egypt, this pagan land. And we could skip forward again to verse 30, where it reads of Moses. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, here's the point. God meets with people outside of the temple. And Stephen is saying, why are you all so hung up with this temple? Consider our history. God meets people where they are at. And then he would go to the last part I will show you here is in verses 49 and 50, where he offers a direct quote from Isaiah 66, speaking of the temple, in which he says, God speaking, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is this place of my rest? In other words, I am God. How are you going to build a temple that is sufficient for all my glory? And the best that we can do is have this temple and a house of worship, but we are not to worship the house of worship. This is Stephen's point. God meets with people right where they are at. I don't know where it was for you, but for me it wasn't in a church building. And I'm for church buildings, but it was in a dorm room on the other side of the state. I'm curious, how many of you who are followers of Jesus, who are Christians, can pinpoint the day that you became a Christian and it was not in a church building? How many of you would raise your hand? Look all around here. If Stephen were here, he would say, see that? He would say, God is active. He meets people outside the church walls, and that's why we need to go outside the church walls. Amen? Amen. So there is the first point. God is not confined to one location, and that's the point Stephen is making. Second point under this long sermon that he offers in Acts 7 is Israel has a history of rejecting God's servants. So you could look back at the passage we just looked at in 7 verse 9. It speaks of Joseph and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Here is Joseph. He was going to be a leader there. He would want be a wonderful leader to help the nation of Israel. But his brothers, they didn't want anything to do with him. And another good example of that is Moses. Look with me at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. God sent this man. And through this man, he performed many miracles. And what was the response of God's people to him? You see it there in verse 35. They rejected him. And you see what Stephen is doing here. As he is saying, let us consider our history, Sanhedrin. We have a history of rejecting the very people whom God has sent to us. And now he's saying in that same passage which we were just reading, look what it says in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. In church, who is he speaking to here? He is speaking about Jesus. Moses is prophesying about Jesus coming. And Stephen is saying, just as you and our people have rejected Moses from the past, right now you are rejecting Jesus. It seems to be in our blood. And then finally, as I kind of summarize this sermon, here's his point. The Jews broke the law. The argument here is, Stephen, you've broken God's law. And and Stephen is turning this right around on him and says, no, actually, you've broken the law. You see, God's law for the Jew, it was believed it could deliver them into a right relationship with God. Jesus said of the same people, they study the scriptures and they think that they know them, but they miss the boat entirely because the scriptures are about Jesus. Does that same thing happen today where people can look at the scriptures 
and see it as just a bunch of rules and a, and a way to live, but they miss sight that it's really all about Jesus. If, if you were to, a fan of iTunes and you were to look at the most uh, listened to iTunes, I suspect on that top 10 or 20 list, you hear a guy by the name of Ben Shapiro. I imagine many of you know that name. He is one who speaks on issues of politics. And he is a Jew. He is one who, who reveres the Old Testament. He would say that is authoritative, that is inspired word of God. It was about a year ago where Ben Shapiro on a Sunday afternoon sat across the table from a preacher by the name of John MacArthur. And then they talked with one another, not only about government, not only about ethics, but about the word of God. And then Mr. Shapiro's credit, he gave Mr. MacArthur about 16 or 17 uninterrupted minutes where he was speaking to Mr. Shapiro that the Bible really is all about Jesus. And here you have this brilliant man who many follow, and yet there was a veil over his eyes as he was sharing this truth about the whole point of the scriptures. And if it can happen to Ben Shapiro, it can happen to anyone here, right? This is a brilliant man, but these are spiritual things. The Bible is all about Jesus. And so here's how he concludes his message. Why don't we read this part? Verse 51. If you're wanting to learn how to close off a good Bible study lesson or a good sermon or a good Sunday school lesson, this is how you do it, right? If you want to get people's attention, let's read in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, if you have been following in Acts 4 and Acts 5, you'll know that Peter and John and the apostles, they came at the Sanhedrin at a very similar tone and a very similar message. But at this point, the Sanhedrin has had enough and they snap. So that leads us to number four then. And that is Stephen dies like Jesus. Let's read what the scripture has to say here about this in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. And church family, what would have been the biblical response? What ought they have done when the word of God had been preached to them? They ought have given it some thought, prayed about that, and surrendered and received this Jesus. But instead, as it says here, they ground their teeth. There is no evidence here of a formal deliberation. There is no follow-up question. It's like rage. Then we read in verse 55, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And verse 56, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now you and I, when we think about Jesus, we think of him being seated at the right hand of God. But this is not what it says here. It says that he is standing. Do you think that there is any significance to that? 
They tell me that when a person graduates in the college, as they come across that platform, the faculty will remain seated for those who are receiving their bachelor's degree. Good job. Yep, you got your bachelor's degree. Well done. They will remain seated when those come across the platform when they receive their master's degree. Well done. I can tell that it took you some time and some effort to do that. But when students come across that platform to receive their Ph.D., the faculty stands as if to say, we know what you've done. We know the sacrifice that has went into that. And as a result, we are on our feet. And could it be, as Jesus was observing Stephen at this moment, and he is about ready to be killed, Jesus stands at his feet. Uh, If you're at an airport and you're waiting for your loved one to come, it would be rude for you just to sit there, right? They come out of that uh, security area. Well, it's about time you got here. Don't, Don't you stand at your feet in anticipation. And when Stephen is about ready to be killed, Jesus stands up as if to say, I'm ready. Amen. I'm looking forward to seeing you. So let's read about this. Verse 57 says, But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, here's the picture. This, this is not going to be really good for us to think about, but it's, I think it's scriptural. What's happening here, like baseball, where there are pitchers that are in the bullpen on a cool spring night, and a phone call is being placed that says, hey, can you warm up Hader? It's about time for him to come in. What does Josh Hader do? He takes off his jacket. Because if he starts warming up, because he's a lefty. If he starts warming up with that jacket, it's going to be hindered, right? And so here you have these Jews that are so enraged that they need to get their jacket off so they can throw these stones as hard as they can. And so they put him at the feet of this man named Saul. And then they begin to take these stones. And now this is likely Stephen is not a, an old man, a frail man, that just one rock would have done it. I suspect he was a young man full of life. And this would have taken one stone after another. And these guys are all warmed up now. And they are throwing him, these rocks, to the point of his death. Listen to verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Is there anyone else in the New Testament that said that? Jesus did. Then, listen to this, the last words on his mouth. Listen to what it says in verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I want to suggest to you that even in his death, as his life is being shaken, What is coming out of it is grace. And he is concerned about the souls of those people who are throwing stones at him. Let me ask you a question. Did God answer that prayer? Do you remember a name that we just read? 
Saul. Yeah. In God's providence, the last words that come out of Stephen's mouth were a prayer for Saul and for those who were throwing stones at him. And in God's mercy, he would not hold Paul's sin against him. Saul would become Paul, the greatest theologian this world has ever produced. Full of grace. Stephen points to us of what a Jesus-like life can look. Look at the last words here of this passage. He fell asleep. I, I believe a whole sermon could be preached on that in a Christian's perspective of death. I don't know about you, but I look forward to sleeping. I see it as a gift from God. After a long day, I love just to lay down and just be replenished. And so, in God's providence, Luke records Stephen's death as a sleep. As like he is being ushered in to a standing Jesus. I want you to think about that. Before we get to the legacy of Stephen, I want you just to contemplate What happens when you are bumped up against? What are you full of? Is it envy? Is it anger? Is it irritation? Is it impatience? Is it fits of rage? What happens when you are falsely accused? Wouldn't you want to learn how to have what Stephen had? I'm speaking to Christians and I'm speaking to those of you who are yet Christians. Stephen shows us exhibit A of what a life filled with the Spirit looks like. And maybe it would be appropriate for us just to pause right now and say, that's not what I have. Would you help fill me? Would you help allow my life to be over your control and be controlled in every area that it would be said of me that I'm full of grace? that I'm full of wisdom, that I'm full of faith. That when I am bumped up against, I'd actually be praying for those who are doing that. Have you yet to come to know this Jesus? What is keeping you from doing that? I cannot promise you a life of what the world would say of success because Stephen was right where God wanted him and it cost him his life but it's worth having your sins forgiven. Why don't we just pause here? You think about that before we conclude our message today. Because I want to spend a few moments thinking about the legacy of Stephen. Is your life full of grace? When you are bumped up against, what comes out of you? Perhaps the Lord would give you a time right now of just repentance and reflection. Let me just give you a few moments. Yeah, Father... Thank you for this really a a clear picture of Stephen and his life before us. And and the hero here is not Stephen. It It is Jesus and the work that you have done in his life. And I pray that there would be this fullness in our life as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's just spend a few moments now considering his legacy. I mean, was this was this life and death in vain? I mean, what what good comes from something like this? 
Well, can we read the next couple of verses? We'll start in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Just wait a few weeks and we're going to cover Saul. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. If you're taking notes, write the word turning point there by his legacy. Because Stephen's life and death truly did matter. It served as a turning point for the church. You see, up until this point, their evangelism was largely confined to the city of Jerusalem. And now, because of Stephen's death and the persecution that came as a result of it, they realized we cannot keep this gospel in our city anymore. And they were scattered out. And they went to Samaria on their way to the ends of the earth. And I want to say to your church family, I believe as we glean from this, that a healthy church is not one that is only focused on their city, but it's one that's focused outside their city as well as around the world. As I think about this passage, and I spend a great deal of time thinking about Highland Crest, and what would it look like for us to be right where God wants us, and what sort of strategies, and how are we to do this? When I look at a passage like what we've covered the last two weeks, I see a church in Acts chapter 6 that had some complaining in it. I see a church in Acts chapter 6 that had some some smearing of lies going on against one of their leaders. I see a church that had one of their leaders in the will of God being murdered. And then I see in Acts chapter 8, deportation taking place. And what is God doing? He's growing his church. And it's like, Chad, how about you get out of the way and you just let me lead this? And this is what Jesus said. He said in in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. How about you just read the Bible, teach the Bible. You love people, encourage them to apply the Bible to their lives. Share that truth with others and I'll take care of everything else. That, That seems to be what we can get from this in Acts 6, 7 and the beginning of 8. God's got this. Let's just be faithful to what he is doing.